Good morning, church family. Let's try that again. Good morning, church family. Ah, that's better. I like that very much. What a joy and what a privilege it is to be with you today to worship our Lord together and to have the honor of preaching the Word of God here at Woodlawn Baptist Church. And I am excited to be here today. I want to thank you for the privilege. I want to express my love and appreciation to your pastor, Dr. Lewis Richardson, my dear friend. I call him friend now. In earlier days, he was a student of mine, as you know. And then uh, he served in my office as my administrative assistant, executive assistant, when I served as the dean of the School of Theology at Southwestern Seminary. And so he was my student. He was, I was his boss for a period of time. And of course, we were friends in those days as well. But today, I view him as a friend, a colleague and a friend. Dr. Richardson, thank you for the privilege of being in your church today. And thank you, Erica. So good to see you and all of your family as well. And it is my honor and joy to be a part of this Bible conference, this special conference on the subject of the Bible and worship. And so that is the topic and the subject that we are considering today, the Bible and the subject of worship. And as we do so, I want to bring the message today and do a brief exposition and application of verses out of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, specifically verses 16 and 17. Now we'll take a look at a little bit of before those verses and a little bit into chapter 4 as well. But I want us particularly to focus our attention on 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Would you pray with me this morning as we ask the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit, to open up our eyes and minds and hearts and wills to the Word of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for this hour of worship. Thank You, Father, for the wonderful foundation of our worship, which is Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and the written Scriptures, the Word of God, which are able to make us wise to salvation. And it is the preaching of this Word and someone's teaching of this Word or someone's sharing of this Word in our lives at some point in the past that you use to bring us to salvation and to faith in Christ. Father, we thank you. And now, Lord, at this hour, as we come to focus on your Word, as we come to hear your Word preached, as we come to listen to the preaching of the Word of God, May you now fill us with your Holy Spirit. May you now guide us. May you direct my thoughts and my words that I would only speak your words from Scripture and honor you and your Son. And Lord, may the preaching of the Word of God today build up the body of Christ, the church, and may the preaching of the Word of God today be used by the Holy Spirit to draw unsaved people to Christ, that there would be those who come to Jesus in this service today. Lord, these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's not every day you get the privilege of touring the Mamertine prison in Rome, Italy. But the year is A.D. 67, and you and I and our tour guide have the privilege of doing that today. We see the edifice as he brings us to the front of the building. And normally they don't allow tourists to come inside the prison, but we've gotten a special dispensation. Our tour guide knows somebody, and so we're actually going to get to go in and get a little tour of the prison today. And so we make our way through the front door. We make our way down hallways, and we make our way down, down, down into the dungeon region of the Mamertine prison in Rome, Italy. We're looking at cells over here and cells over there, and we pass a corner cell, and it's rather dark, and it's dank, and it's depressing. And there's a lone figure in that cell as we stop and peer through the bars. He's over in the corner. He has a little tiny makeshift table. He's writing something. We ask our tour guide, who is that guy over there? He's rather short. He's balding, sitting at the table with his back to us. Who is that? Well, that's a man named Paul. They call him the Apostle Paul. They claim that uh, he was called to preach by some Jew named Jesus who got in trouble with the Romans, and they crucified him several years ago. And Yet this Paul has gone around preaching everywhere that Jesus is the Son of God and has preached the gospel that Jesus has risen from the dead and can bring salvation for the sins of the people. And the Roman government doesn't take too kindly to that. And so he's been arrested by Nero and he's been in this prison here for a while. And, you know, frankly, I've heard some rumors that things are not looking very good, that he may be on death row. And probably just a matter of months, maybe even weeks, before Nero will put him to death. Well, what's that? What do you think he's writing over there? Well, I think he's writing a letter. He's written several, you know. And I think he's writing a letter to a young man by the name of Timothy, who's one of those young preachers. And I think that uh, Paul is writing what will probably be his last letter. Well, I wonder what he's writing. And would you know it, though we can't go in and talk to him and see him, but it just so happens on the day that you and I have visited the Mamertine prison in A.D. 67, the Apostle Paul is finishing up these words in 2 Timothy, which would be his last book, his swan song, so to speak, before he would be put to death just weeks in the future. 
And he's pinning these words as we peer through the bars and watch. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. He was a great, brilliant writer, Sir Walter Scott. As he lay on his deathbed, the family was around, and a young nephew was there, and one of the last things that Sir Walter Scott ever said as he turned to his nephew was, son, bring me the book. And the nephew said, well, sir, you have a huge library here. You've got many books. Which book do you want me to bring? And Sir Walter Scott responded, son, there is only one book. Bring me the Bible. There is only one book, and it is the Bible, and it is that book that I want to talk to you about this morning. It is from that book we read these very verses this morning. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. We read about the purpose of the Bible in life and history. We read about the place of the Bible in life and history. Have you ever stopped to think that were it not for the Bible, you would have no knowledge of Jesus? Were it not for Scripture, we would have not the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We would not know the life of Jesus. We would not know the words of Jesus were it not for the Bible. Would you know that without Scripture, we don't know doctrine? Unless God has spoken to us, which He has indeed in His Word called the Bible, because there is a Word from God, we know Bible doctrine. God tells us things about Himself God tells us things about you and me. God tells us things about the present. And God tells us things about the future. Were it not for the Bible, we would not know how God expects us to live. We would not have an ethical understanding of morality and how God expects us to conduct ourselves in the world in which we live. Thankfully, God has given us that in His Word. Were it not for the Bible, we would not know how it's going to end. We would not have the book of Revelation, where God Himself gives us a bit of a blueprint for how things are going to conclude on that day when Jesus returns again. Because of the Bible, you and I have a peek at the last page of history, and the book of Revelation tells us that. This book we hold in our hands today, the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, tells us about God's panoramic plan of salvation, and at the center and the hub and the heart of it all is Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2 tells us God has spoken in many ways by the fathers through the prophets, but in these last days God has spoken to us in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This book tells us about creation. This book tells us about consummation. This book tells us about salvation. When I read the Bible, the Bible itself gives us different metaphors and pictures and descriptions of itself. You read in the Bible that the Bible is like food. Paul and Peter talk about how we need the milk and the meat of the Word of God. 
Paul talks about the Bible as it is a sword in Ephesians 6, verse 17. And also the author of Hebrews speaks of Scripture as that sword of the Spirit, the Word of God that pierces to the dividing asunder of the joints and the marrow and the soul and the Spirit, and how it is powerful, the sword of God. James calls it a seed. He tells us that we have been converted, we've been saved by this implanted seed of the Word of God, which then grows and matures in our life. James also calls it a mirror. Scripture is a mirror. You hold the Scriptures up to yourself, and it's a mirror that reflects exactly who you are, exactly how you look spiritually, and exactly what's on the inside. It's the magic mirror of the Word of God. This passage in Scripture tells us about the inspiration of this book we call the Bible. You know, the Bible's an amazing book, isn't it? Think about it. It's really one library of 66 books, all brought together under the, under the category of one single book that we call the Bible. We have books in the Old Testament. We have books in the New Testament. They're brought together, 66 books of the Bible, written by more than 40 different authors on three different continents in three different languages over a period of roughly 1,600 years. And yet for all of that, there is a unity that pervades the books of the Bible as they tell us about Jesus, as they tell us about salvation. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. I want you to think about that. What does Paul mean when he says that? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Well, I want you to think with me, first of all, about that phrase, all Scripture. All Scripture. The way Paul writes that in the original language is he is describing Scripture first as a unity such that all of Scripture, the totality of Genesis to Revelation, is the Word of God. And secondly, he is indicating that each individual part of that whole of Scripture is the Word of God. Every verse, every word from Genesis to the end of Revelation is the Word of God. All Scripture, all Scripture is inspired. We call that plenary inspiration. That's just a word that we use in theology. The word plenary means full. The Bible is fully inspired. It is completely inspired. All Scripture is inspired. There are not some parts of Scripture that are more inspired than others, nor are there parts of Scripture less inspired than others. No, all Scripture is inspired. The genealogical tables are inspired. The poetry of Psalms and Proverbs are inspired. The prophecies of the Old Testament are all inspired. The books of the New Testament, every one of them, and every nook and cranny in every one of them is inspired. All Scripture is inspired by God. Look at that word inspired. All Scripture is inspired by God. Did you know that word literally means God breathed? You could translate it that way. All Scripture is God breathed. You say, wait a minute, hang on, David. Uh, time out here a minute. I, I thought the Bible was written by people. You are correct. Well, I thought the Bible was written by men. Uh, you're correct. Over 40 of them. Well, well then, 
uh, how is it, if the Bible's written by men, then how is this that God inspired this Bible? Because God inspired those men to write Scripture in such a way that everything they wrote is exactly what God wanted written. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is inspired by God. That's what sets this book off from every other book. That's what makes this book unique to every other book that has ever been written in history. The Bible is the Word of God. The Bible contains the very words of God. The Bible is the very words of God. From Genesis to Revelation, all Scripture is God-breathed. This is what we refer to as the inspiration of the Bible. And the unity of Scripture is a demonstration of its inspiration. The fact that from Genesis to Revelation, there is a unity of one message, one plan of redemption, one Savior that is prophesied in the Old Testament who comes in the New Testament and who's coming again in Revelation at the end of the New Testament. All of this together, there's a unified theme and message and purpose that is revealed in Scripture that demonstrates its reality, its inspiration, it's the Word of God. Did you know that only Christianity, only Judaism and Christianity, the Old Testament and the New Testament, have the, the reality or the actuality of prophecy? Did you know that other religions don't have prophecy? But Christianity does because Jesus is prophesied in the Old Testament and there are 60, at least 60 prophecies one way or another of the coming of the Messiah, of the coming of Jesus in the Old Testament, which have come true in the New Testament or some which will be fulfilled when Jesus returns a second time when he comes again. You know what the odds are mathematically? Of just eight, let's just take eight, eight of those 60 prophecies. Do you know what the odds are that eight of those would be fulfilled? These are prophecies hundreds of years ago in the Old Testament, and now they are fulfilled by Jesus in the New Testament. What are the odds that eight of those would come true? The odds are one in 10 to the 17th power. That's a 10 with 17 zeros behind it. That's a number that you and I can't even begin to fathom, so allow me to illustrate it this way. Take the state of Texas, fill it with silver dollars three feet deep, the entire state of Texas. Choose one of those silver dollars and mark it with an X. And then drop that silver dollar somewhere mixed in with all of those other silver dollars with an X, uh, one X, and all of those other silver dollars without an X. Mix it into all of the silver dollars, three feet, feet, three feet deep, all over the state of Texas. Take a blind man and send him into the state of Texas and tell him, You've got to choose the silver dollar with the X mark on it, the first pick you make. That is your chances, 1 in 10 to the 17th power of choosing that silver dollar, the first 
time. The reality of eight prophecies being fulfilled, many others than just those eight, and others that will be fulfilled when Jesus comes, the prophecy of Scripture is a testimony to its inspiration. But when Paul says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, the net result of that is the inerrancy of Scripture. There's another word I want to teach you this morning. Scripture is inerrant. It is without error. From Genesis to Revelation, on any aspect of which Scripture speaks, even whether it be history or science, much less doctrine or theology or ethics, it is without error. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is without error. Now, your interpretation of the Bible is not without error. And my interpretation of the Bible is not always without error. But the Scriptures themselves are without error. Because you see, to err is human, that's certainly true. But God is God, and if God breathes this Scripture, then He is preserving the writers from error, and the result of the inspiration is a Scripture that is without error. And that has been the historic position of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ from the beginning of the church all of the way through until the age of enlightenment when liberalism reared its ugly head on the face of the planet and then people began to denigrate and to deny the inerrancy of scripture and philosophers began to deny it and then that finally bled over even into the church and you have liberal theologians that began to deny the inerrancy of scripture and today outside of the evangelical world it's common to laugh at the concept of an inerrant Bible, which, by the way, is why it's not preached in those churches as well. Because, you see, when you don't trust the authority of the Bible, and you don't believe in the inerrancy of the Bible, then why preach the Bible? And so many churches today that are dead and that are apostate do not preach the Bible. But Paul says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and the result of that inspiration is the inerrancy of Scripture. We had a battle for the Bible in the Southern Baptist Convention. It began in 1979. I well remember. I was a part of it, played a small role at the beginning of those days. I was a student at Southwestern Seminary. In 1979, when Adrian Rogers was elected president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and the conservative resurgence in the convention was off and running. And a year after that, long about 1980, I was in a classroom at Southwestern Seminary. And a professor in that classroom was talking to us about Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman. You remember the story, there's Jesus, he's dining at the table, and the Syrophoenician woman, she's not Jewish, she's a pagan, she's a foreigner, but she's heard about Jesus, and she wants healing for her child, and she comes and she asks Jesus for healing, and Jesus responds in a way that appears to be harsh to her when he says, it's not uh, proper for uh, us to take the crumbs from the bread of the table of the people and give them to the dogs. And people thought, oh, they read that, and they think that's harsh. And her response was, but even the little dogs, she uses the little word puppy dogs, eat from the crumbs of the master's table. And Jesus says, I've not found such great faith in all of Israel. You go, your child is healed. This professor, I was there, stood there and said, Jesus never sinned, but Jesus made mistakes. And he said, this is an example of a mistake that Jesus made. And then he went on and he said, Jesus, being Jewish, was prejudiced against the Syrophoenician woman. 
Because Jews were prejudiced against Syrophoenician people. And therefore Jesus was biased and was actually prejudiced. And that's why he spoke to her harshly as he did. But then when she responded, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. When she responded, yes, but even the, even the little puppy dogs eat of the crumbs from the master's table, Jesus heard the voice of God through her speaking to him, telling Jesus that he was wrong. And therefore Jesus said, I've not found so great faith in all of Israel. That was in a classroom, Southwestern Seminary, 1980, I was there. I cannot imagine a more convoluted doctrine of the person and work of Christ, the person of Christ, than to say that Jesus, yeah, he never sinned, but he made mistakes. You know, folks, last time I checked in my Bible, uh, prejudice and racism is sinful. It's not a mistake, it's a sin. I was astounded. There was a reason why there was a conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist Convention, because it was greatly needed at that time. Paul is talking about the inerrancy of Scripture. That's what that battle was fought over, was the inerrancy of Scripture. It was not political. It's not who gets control, although that was all a part of it. There were political aspects to it. But the bottom line is, what is the nature of the Bible? Is it the Word of God, and is it without error? Does it mean everything it says it means, or is it just a human book? As some professors got together in 1969, when W.A. Criswell, pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, wrote his book, why I believe the Bible is literally true, a group of professors at some of, the Southern, uh, some of the Baptist seminaries got together and wrote a book counter to his book, Why the Bible is a Human Book. The inerrancy of Scripture is a result of the inerrancy, a result of the inspiration of Scripture. And then I could say a quick word maybe just about the indestructibility of the Bible as an evidence of this inspiration. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Have you noticed that throughout history people have tried to destroy this Bible and they can't do it? Diocletian in 310 A.D. figured he could wipe out Christianity, have all the Bibles burned, but just a few years later in 325, Constantine the emperor became a Christian and said the Bible is the Word of God and Diocletian ended, and he ended the attempt to destroy the Word of God. Throughout history, people have tried to destroy the Bible. Voltaire, the philosopher in France, the philosopher Voltaire would debate Christians and laugh at the authority or the inerrancy of the Bible. And then when Voltaire died, a Bible publishing company bought his house and published Bibles and stored them and sold them out of Voltaire's house after he died. God has a sense of humor. Tom Paine, during the American Revolution, Thomas Paine wrote a famous book called The Age of Reason. And in that book and, and in his speeches that he made in colonial America, Thomas Paine, the atheist, said, when I get through, there won't be five Bibles left in America. If you have a Bible with you today, would you lift it up? I don't know about you, but that looks like more than five. 
Nobody's ever heard of Thomas Paine's Age of Reason anymore, but the Bible is the Word of God. Hammer on, ye hostile hands. Your hammers break. God's anvil stands. The inspiration of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, the indestructibility of Scripture, and the influence of Scripture. Oh, it's this book that's the source of our salvation, isn't it? It's the Jesus of this book who died on the cross in our place, who paid the penalty for our sin. That is the reason why we are saved today. Thank God for the Bible. It is a book about a Savior. It is a book about Jesus. It is a book that teaches us the word of the living God. It is a book that changes our hearts, that brings conviction that brings not only conviction, but conversion, and then that brings comfort and strength for daily living. This is the word of the living God. And notice he says, by the way here, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And look at it. It's profitable for four things. It is profitable for teaching. All by all teaching, all doctrine comes from Scripture. It is profitable for teaching. The role of Scripture in the church through the teaching arm of the church and the preaching ministry of the church, the role of Scripture is central. And therefore, what is it we are teaching? The Bible. We're teaching everything the Bible teaches. What does the Bible say about God? What does the Bible say about you? What does the Bible say about sin? What does the Bible say about salvation? What does the Bible say about eternal life? What does the Bible say about the resurrection? What does the Bible say about the second coming? What does the Bible say about heaven and hell? That's what we preach and teach the Bible because it is the word of the living God. It's profitable for teaching. It's profitable for rebuking. Sometimes we do wrong. Sometimes we make mistakes. And the Word of God rebukes us. The Word of God says, now stop that. The Word of God says, now quit that. The Word of God says, now don't do that. We get rebuked by the Word of God. The Word of God is profitable for correction. We need to be corrected. We need to be not only told what we're doing wrong, but we need to be told here's how to do it right. And so we are corrected by Scripture, the Word of God. And by the way, the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, this is how these things are accomplished. This is where we are taught. This is how we are rebuked. This is how we are corrected. And finally, the Word of God is profitable for training in righteousness. Here's how we grow. Here's how we're trained. This book is a training manual. It's a training manual for the Christian life. It's the training manual for living for Christ. Here is where we learn truth. Here is where we learn doctrine. Here is where we learn ethical implications of how we are to live. Here is where we learn about our past, our present, and our future. The Bible is profitable for these four things. So that, verse 17 says, the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. The Word of God is the book the man of God preaches to the people of God so that the work of God can be done in the way of God for the glory of God. That is Scripture. 
That is the Bible. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for all of these things. When Adrian Rogers was elected president of the Southern Baptist Convention and shortly thereafter, one of the moderate liberals in the Southern Baptist Convention at the time said to him, Adrian, if you don't compromise, we will never be able to get together. And I'll never forget what Adrian Rogers said. These are his words. Rogers firmly replied, I'm willing to compromise about many things, but not the Word of God. So far as getting together is concerned, we don't have to get together. The Southern Baptist Convention, as it is, does not have to survive. I don't have to be the pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church. I don't have to be loved. I don't even have to live. But I will not compromise the Word of God. When I was a young man, a young preacher, I heard those words. And when I was a young man and a young preacher, I was trained by a man of God named Jerry Vines, who faithfully for six years during my teenage years, under whose ministry I was called to preach, preached this Bible as the inspired, inerrant, infallible, indestructible Word of the living God. That's the foundation upon which I stand. And throughout all of my career in ministry as a pastor of two churches for 21 years, pastor of 14 inter interim pastorates, 14 churches, interim pastorates, and a teaching career spanning 35 years, teaching, preaching to young men just like your pastor, on that foundation of those men who went before me, and on that foundation of this book, the Bible, on that foundation do I stand. And on that foundation do you stand. And on that foundation does your pastor stand every Sunday as he preaches faithfully this book, the Bible, the Word of the living God. And that's why Paul closes his swan song, 2 Timothy, as he gets into chapter 4. And he says, now, young Timothy, I have something I want to say to you. I'm not going to be around long. They're about to lop off my head here in this Mamertine prison. But there's something I want to say to you. And so chapter 4, right after chapter 3, where he talks about the inerrancy, inspiration, infallibility of Scripture, chapter 4, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead. And because of his appearing in his kingdom, wow, look at all of that preface. That's a preface. It's a solemn charge, Timothy. Pay attention, Timothy. It's a solemn charge, church. Listen carefully. To, you are going to have to give an account to the judge of the living and the dead. His appearing is soon. His kingdom is coming. And therefore, I want to say to you, young Timothy, and his words echo clearly today as the Spirit of God speaks them to you and to me in this sermon through this book, verse 2, preach the word. The object of the verb preach is the word word. That word logos in context means the Scripture because he just got through talking about the Scripture in 3.16. What is it that we preach? The Word of God, Scripture. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. We preach the written Word, the Bible. We preach the living Word, Jesus. That is what a church ought to be doing. Preaching the Word. September of 1938, 
a farmer lived on Long Island in New York. He was excited when his new expensive barometer arrived as a, in a package to his home. He eagerly opened the package, but the mercury in the barometer was at the very, very bottom. He said, something's wrong with my new barometer. He shook it, but the mercury stayed at the bottom. He tapped it, but the mercury stayed at the bottom. He finally concluded in exasperation, my new barometer, my new expensive barometer is broken. He put it back in the box, got in his little truck, and drove to the post office where he was going to return the barometer that was broken. On the way back, the winds were whipping up pretty badly, and by the time he arrived back at his house on Long Island, New York, his house was gone. It had been washed into the sea by the worst hurricane natural disaster in that part of the country that devastated seven states and killed dozens and dozens of people and displaced tens of thousands of people in the worst hurricane of September of 1938 that even to this day ever hit that region. Broken barometer... No, the barometer was accurate. It was forecasting the storm is about to hit. And this word of God is accurate. And when you read it, it forecasts what's going to happen. It forecasts your judgment if you're listening to me preach and you don't know Christ as your Savior and you persist in a state of unbelief. You don't come to Christ. You refuse to believe in Him. You persist in a state of unbelief. This Bible, the barometer, the mercury is at the bottom. It's telling you, it's warning you today, judgment is coming if you don't come to Christ. It is a barometer. It is a reminder and a call. The gospel is a call to all of you who do not know Christ today. The gospel is a call to you for your salvation. A call inviting you to come to Christ and believe in Him who has made a promise that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This book, the Bible, is where your salvation is found because it tells you about a Savior in whom you have salvation. Jesus Christ who suffered and died on the cross for your sins paying the price for your sins and who offers eternal life to all who will believe in him receiving him by faith and that's what we're about today on the authority of this book not on the authority of this church not on the authority of that pastor or this guest preacher or anybody else not on the authority of any denomination on the authority of God Christ and his word the scripture all who come to Christ will be saved in that authority do we call you to come to faith in Christ but all this book is a book of comfort and encouragement to those of us who know Christ it's our guide it's our comfort it's our lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It's food to our spiritual mouths, which is why I love that old poem called The Precious Bible. Though the cover is worn and the pages are torn 
And though places bear traces of tears, yet more precious than gold is the book, worn and old that can shatter and scatter my fears. When I prayerfully look in the precious old book, many pleasures and treasures I see, many tokens of love from the Father above, who is nearest and dearest to me. This old book is my guide. Tis a friend by my side. It will lighten and brighten my way. And each promise I find soothes and gladdens my mind as I read it and heed it today. The precious Bible. Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for your word. Lord, no preacher's tongue can ever do it justice. We never do. We always feel that we should have done better when we preach it. But we recognize the powers, not in a human tongue, the powers in this book, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, who takes it and applies it to our lives, who brings conviction of our sin and draws us to a Savior. And Father, I pray for the salvation of those in this building who do not know Christ, and those watching me and listening to me online who do not know Christ, Lord, may this be the day that they come to faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, may we who are Christians be encouraged today, be challenged today, be built up in our Christian life today. Father, may we rejoice and be thankful for this wonderful Word of God. And as the psalmist in Psalm 1 reminds us in verse 2, may in this Word we delight and may we meditate in it day and night that we might know how to live in a way pleasing to you. Father, bless your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.